I guess. Our, our scripture this morning comes from Mark chapter 8. We'll throw it up on the screen and I'll start at verse 31. Then he, that's Jesus, then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed. And after three days rise again, and he, he speaks very plainly. This is not coded language here. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and rebuked him. You ever tried to tell Jesus what to do? Um, but when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd around him. It's important to remember there's Jesus and his twelve, but he also has quite a, a group following him around. So he calls the crowd with him among the disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their very soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, then the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. So, when I was in high school, I had an iPod, and I was very proud of it. It was one of the cool ones with the the video capabilities. I'm still struggling with this microphone, so just give me a second to clip it on. And one of the um, podcasts used to be videos back then. One of the podcasts that I followed was something uh, called like Mr. God. It was a sketch comedy series, and I spent way too much time this past week trying to find the episode that I'm going to talk about to show it to you, but to no avail. It is gone. Um, and maybe, maybe that's a good thing. Um, the, the main comedic angle of this show was that the Trinity was this dysfunctional family and that the creation, the cosmos, was the family business that God was the boss over. And, and for a while, the show was mostly about God being a jerk to the angels and his receptionist and uh, that the devil was his ex-wife or uh, him arbitrarily making up rules about stuff. Um, but it really got interesting for me when God offered... Jesus a promotion. This is terrible theology, like the worst. This is, it's probably a good thing that it's gone. But remember, this is a reverent comedy series. So God offers Jesus a promotion to partner if he will go to earth and deliver God's message, to which Jesus begrudgingly agrees. And throughout the season where Jesus is on earth and God is giving him instructions, it becomes increasingly obvious that Jesus has bitten off way more than he can chew. Jesus wonders why people are mad at him all the time. And he starts getting the sneaking suspicion that God is trying to get him killed. In the show, Jesus is pretty sure that the plan was for him to just become the king of earth, and that this is going to be a pretty cushy gig. This is going to be nice and easy. Um, and I've never forgotten one of the jokes where Jesus reads this section of Mark 8. He's handed a script. Whenever he says something in the show, that scripture gets like handed to him by an angel. And he starts to read it, and he gets, whoever wants to be my follower must deny themselves, and he, like uneasy laughter, like he wasn't sure about that, and take up their cross. And he's shocked at the words he's been handed to read. What? And he pulls out his flip phone, because it's like 2005. He pulls out his flip phone and calls God, Dad! What is this 
deny yourself stuff. It sounds really hard, and I don't think people will like it. And God says to him, well, it is hard. It takes discipline. He says, people don't like discipline, Dad. And God says, I was thinking we'd even call your followers disciples. Jesus says, that'll never work, and hangs up his moto razor. It's easy for us to forget uh, sitting here in our nice church buildings and comfy chairs or at home streaming the service online. Has it ever been easier to go to church? Uh, it's easy for us to forget with our nice stuff and our leather-bound Bibles and all that, that the words in this book come from somewhere, and that our contemporary Western American understanding of them can sometimes obscure some of the original meaning that's hidden in the text. And so what does it mean in the first century in Judea for Jesus to use the term disciple? If anyone wants to be my disciple, what, what's he getting at? Well, in the time of Jesus, Jewish children were, for the most part, educated in their local uh, synagogue, where they would study under the local rabbi. Their first lesson would likely come from Psalm 119, the longest psalm in the Bible. Psalm 119 is an acrostic of the Hebrew alphabet, so each section starts with one of the letters in order. Aleph, the second section starts with Bet, the next starts with Gimel, so on and, and so on. Good place to start, ABCs. And from here... Starting at around age five, kids would be trained in scripture, memorizing most of what we now know as the Old Testament. After this first level where they basically memorized the first five books, any student that was falling behind, who clearly couldn't keep up, who wasn't at this level or wasn't ready, would gracefully be dismissed. You'd get kicked out of school and sent home to study the family trade. But if you were able to keep up with your local rabbi, you worked hard, you memorized most of the Bible, and excelled in history and Hebrew philosophy, you could seek out a rabbi and ask to be their disciple. Now, there were a lot of rabbis out there, and a lot of good ones, like how today there are many wonderful ministers across the world, all of them with different perspectives and interpretations of what it means to follow God, all loving scripture, all loving God, all being students of the tradition, but still finding different ways to live the faithful life. So, if you were one of these best of the best students who had made it all the way through synagogue school, you would find a rabbi whose interpretation of scripture, of the world, of the faithful life, that you found the most convincing, the most compelling, the most beautiful, exciting, energizing, whatever. And you would ask them to be one of their disciples. This could be your local rabbi that you've grown up under. Uh, it could be a prominent rabbi, maybe in a big city or a major learning center or a uh, traveling itinerant rabbi, but someone who you wanted to imitate, someone you wanted to be like, and you would find them and you would ask to be their disciple, and they would test you if they were even interested in taking on more disciples. They'd ask you questions about Torah, questions about the prophets, questions about the writings, about wisdom and philosophy, questions about the obscure and confusing things in the scripture. They would supply ethical tests and riddles and maybe send you on some sort of quest. And depending on your answers, they would either send you home gracefully to work the family trade, or if they think you have what it takes, if they think that you have the capacity to learn, to grow, to be trained, to be coachable, if they think you could be like them and carry on their teachings, they would welcome you with the traditional invitation. Come follow me. 
And that is what the invitation is. It's very literal. Come follow me. Come be like me. Follow me everywhere. Copy me. My every action. Learn by watching. Learn by listening. Learn by doing. There's a, a rather comedic image that comes out of the Mishnah, a, a collection of Jewish oral traditions and teachings of rabbis that's about 200 years older than Jesus. And, and this image in the Mishnah is this image of a group of disciples following their rabbi so closely that they are covered in the dust kicked up by his feet. The, the image developed into an ancient blessing. It goes, let thy house be a meeting place for the wise and powder thyself in the dust of your rabbi's feet. Now, I don't know what's going on with Jesus because when he starts his ministry as a traveling rabbi, what, what he should be doing is heading to prominent towns, big synagogues, maybe seminaries. Uh, he should be on the hunt for the best of the best, young scholars and the great minds of that generation. But Jesus must have uh, missed that memo because when Jesus goes out to find disciples, he calls who? Fishermen, peasants, political dissidents like tax collectors and radical nationalists like zealots. If these people had what it took to be a disciple, or if they had the desire to be one, they would have already sought out a rabbi, and maybe, maybe some of them did. But the fact that when we first encounter them, they are going about their everyday lives means that they didn't make the cut. These are the not good enoughs. And these are the people that Jesus chooses as his disciples. And these are the people with whom Jesus, who we see Jesus with throughout his entire ministry. Jesus goes out and finds losers, the not good enoughs, the ordinary, the broken, the rejected, the disenfranchised, and the discarded. Jesus' invitation goes out to prostitutes like Mary and religious leaders like Nicodemus. Jesus' invitation goes out to Judea first nationalists like Peter and Roman accommodationalists like Matthew. The experience of Jesus is always one of welcome and invitation. Rabbi Jesus comes to all of us with that same invitation. Come, follow me. Let's jump forward in time about 1,400 years, it's not abrupt at all, uh, to a young Lutheran pastor named Diedrich Bonhoeffer. He's living in an underground seminary in Nazi Germany. The year is 1937, and he is preparing to do something very brave and very dangerous. It is in these few years as the head of the Finkenwald Seminary that he sets out to write a book on the meaning of Christian discipleship and the faithful life. He borrows the traditional title of this Mark 8 passage that we just read, calling his book, The Cost of Discipleship. He writes, let's get this quote up on the screen. When Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and die. Now, this is an apt description of the severity of the call. Jesus makes demands of his followers, and they are simultaneously shockingly simple and devastatingly hard. As we discussed only a few moments ago, the job of a disciple is to imitate their rabbi, to endeavor to be like them in every way, to take on not only their teachings, but their lifestyle, their lived example. When Bonhoeffer goes to talk about this in his book, he brings up the Matthew 19 story of the rich young ruler who asked Jesus, 
what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus responds to his question. If you want to be perfect, go and sell your possessions, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then, the invitation, come follow me. The text tells us that that would-be disciple went away sad. The man came to Jesus, the rabbi, with a question, I think hoping for an intellectual answer. He must have been hoping that Jesus would give him something like, if you want to be perfect, pray three times a day and fast on Tuesdays. Then you will be right with God. But instead, the command is much more difficult and at the same time, wildly simple. Jesus' answer is, if you want to follow me, give up what gets in the way and then come be my disciple. Our friend Bonhoeffer was convinced that the life of discipleship was a life of action. That to follow Jesus was not an intellectual exercise. Not even primarily a spiritual exercise. But a life of faithful, outward-facing love and action imitating Jesus. That we are not meant to spend our days debating and discussing how to follow Jesus but that we're actually to get out there and do it. He writes, Perhaps you still think that you ought to think out beforehand what you ought to do. That there is only one answer. You can only know and think about it by actually doing it. You can only learn what obedience is by obeying. It is no use asking questions, for it is only through obedience that you can learn the truth. For Bonhoeffer, the following is literal. The work of the disciple requires getting into the dirt with Jesus, to do the things that Jesus did, to care about the people that Jesus cares about, to take a stand with Jesus, to stand like Jesus stood, to show love that the way he showed and the way he has shown to all of us. This is WWJD in the extreme, because Bonhoeffer has taken from us the question at the beginning of it. it is, it's not anymore, what would Jesus do? Rather, it's DWJD, do what Jesus does. It's, it's stronger. And this is the call of discipleship, right? Follow the rabbi, be like the rabbi, talk like the rabbi, do what the rabbi does. And the rest of the Bible, the, the whole thing, is the church trying to do this? Christians, disciples, trying to imitate Rabbi Jesus. They try, they fail, they have victories, they have setbacks. They get scared, they get confused, they take bold steps out in faith and hard stands against their culture. And they wrestle with fear and with doubt. They stand up to governors and emperors and, and they run from street mobs and hide in catacombs. They disagree with each other, sometimes very strongly. Sometimes they work it out, sometimes they don't. Sometimes faith and love win the day, and sometimes churches fail and fall apart. And the best thing about all of it is that they wrote it all down. And that is, that's so good. The Bible is not a monolith or a manual. The Bible is a beautiful divine conversation. Different voices at different times, in different places, under different conditions, trying to follow Jesus. We see disciples like Peter and Philip faced very early 
in the book of Acts with situations that their upbringing gave them clear religious standings on. And yet the Holy Spirit leads them into these very hard places. Do I follow the rules or do I baptize this eunuch? Do I follow the rules or do I baptize this Gentile? Both of them, faced with the decision, choose to be like their rabbi. They choose to do what they think Jesus would do. They choose to follow Jesus. The outsider is baptized. The gospel spreads and the Holy Spirit affirms their courageous decisions. We see people like Paul writing to the church in Ephesus. Ephesus was a center of ancient Roman uh, worship. And he's concerned here that the people have become too confident in their religiosity and too, and too proud of themselves for what they have accomplished. And, and he pens these beautiful lines. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, not by yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that none can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance is our way of life. And then you can flip just a few pages and read the teachings of James, the pastor of the heavily persecuted church in Jerusalem, who, concerned that his church will buckle under the, the pressure, writes these convicting words. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if some of you claim to have faith but don't do anything with it? Can this faith save you? Faith by itself, if not accompanied by actions, is dead. Now, some have seen these as an opposition to each other. Like, the book is arguing with itself. It, it seems that these two sections can be held up as proof that the Bible is contradictory. But this is not contradiction. This is conversation. The diversity of the Bible is not its weakness. It is one of its greatest wisdoms. They are all showing us what it looks like to live as disciples in their context. And their answers are different, but their message is the same, and the proof is in their following of Jesus. Peter and Philip, like Jesus, are crucified. Paul is beheaded. James is stoned. Bonhoeffer is hanged for his faith and his resistance to the Nazi party. In fact, all of Jesus' first disciples, all but one, and most of the early church leaders will be martyred for their faithful commitment to Jesus taking up their own crosses and following him. John writes in Revelation, the last book in the Bible, as he is exiled for his faith on a secluded island away from his community, he writes, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison and you will be tested and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and Jesus will give you the crown of life. Now, there's a lot to unpack there, but today I just want to lock in on that last line. Be faithful even to the point of death. John has seen many of his friends die for the faith. And now he is suffering the torture of isolation. Be faithful even to the point of death. But what's another way to say that line? We, we could mess with it a little bit. And it's be faithful for the rest of your life. It is unlikely that any of us in this room today will suffer persecution to the level of martyrdom. It's unlikely that any of us will be martyred for our faith where we currently sit. But our discipleship does call us to a place of potential suffering and heartache. 
Because if we're going to be disciples of Jesus, we're going to have to do what Jesus does, to follow the example that he has set with reckless abandon. Because here are the facts. Jesus loves the unlovable, the disinherited, the not good enoughs, those at the bottom and those on the outside. Jesus cares for those living under the boot of oppression. Jesus values those who have been devalued. Jesus is infuriated by injustice. Jesus is passionate about peace and fired up about freedom. Jesus is uncompromising about compassion. And when you're covered by the dust of your rabbi, you will be too. When you respond to the call of Jesus to come and follow him, you're saying yes to a life of justice, mercy, compassion, and love. And you are saying no to a life of self-interest, pride, and comfort. To be a follower of Jesus is to hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's Matthew 5, by the way. To crane and strive for a better world. Because if you're going to be like Jesus, you're going to have to stand on the side of the oppressed, take up the cause of justice, defend the weak, and love those who hate you. And that's going to hurt. Justice comes at a cost, and love is always dangerous. But if we're going to love with the same reckless love that Jesus has showed, you and I must be ready and willing to suffer with and suffer for those whom Jesus loves. And all of this is possible for the Christian, because saying yes to the gospel is to be transformed. To have your values and desires realigned with those of Jesus. It is to be disformed from the world in order to be conformed with Jesus. It is to take that first step. Say yes to the gospel is that first step into a new way of being human. A new way of being whole. A new way of being alive. Because discipleship is about identity. It is a way of being which can't help but spill over into the world around us through decisive action on behalf of the vulnerable and the unwanted. As we follow Jesus deeper into the dirt of our broken world, we are covered more and more with the dust of his feet. And in this coating, we find our true selves. For it is in the taking up of the cross of discipleship that we take up our vocation and in dying to ourselves that we find ourselves more alive than we could have ever otherwise imagined. Amen.